Welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. I'm the host of this podcast. As always, the show notes have all of the sources mentioned, as well as all of the ways that you can connect and work with me. Without further ado, on to the show. Today I thought I would do another teaching out of my book, Ambitious Heroes and Heartache. And this is the shortest chapter in the book, I believe. It's called Life is Measured in Moments. And I remember when I was writing this because I was um, at one of my lowest, actually, one of my lowest moments. I had just gone through a breakup and I, I had created these rules for myself. And the rules were, I don't even remember, there were five rules. And one of them was like, if the surf is up, you're going to go surfing no matter what. Um, One of the other rules was be outside for as many sunrises and sunsets as possible. And I didn't necessarily, I think I've talked about some of these rules before, but they were somewhat profound, not in that they're profound in themselves, but that when I was at this low point in my life, they started giving me structure, you know, because one of the things that happens is, When we go through difficult times, it starts to feel really chaotic psychically for us. And if we can start to add structure and it doesn't have to be structure, it it might not even, you might not even want it to be structure from the outside, but an internally imposed structure, meaning it was something that I cared about. You know, I lived in Virginia Beach at the time and the surf was almost never up. And when it was up, I felt like I always missed it. And so, you know, there were just things that to me were like, I would really like to, this is my last summer here, I'd really like to surf, you know? So there wasn't anything profound in themselves, but what's interesting is that something profound came out of them. And it was this chapter called Life is Measured in Moments. And I started to experience this realization that the human mind can hold multiple realities at one time. You know, we have a very We have a very expansive mind that is capable of paradox. We can hold two contradictory ideas together at one time. And why that's important is because I was in the midst of a really depressive episode and at the same time feeling like seeing the sun every morning. And, you know, most of the time, because I didn't just go outside to see the sunrise, I would be on my paddleboard, I would be running, I would be walking on the beach. And it just started to, like I said, it started to, I started to realize that, that these multiple things can exist at once. And though I'm, though I was going through something tough, I started to realize also that life has an incredible quality to it. If you're present to it, you know, if you're there for it and something really interesting is that, you know, this moment that we're in right now is never going to unfold in exactly this same way again. And there's something really tragic about not being here for it. And part of that is why I've like really found a lot of love for these spiritual paths that are committed to being here now, to arriving here in this moment, not to a promise of something in the future, but to like, what does it mean to, to be here for the, for the expanse that life actually is, you know, for the joy, for the wonder, for the pain, for the grief, for all of it. 
And it's a process because we have a lot of defenses, you know, in the personality that keep us from being in the moment. But anyway, one of the things that I started doing was getting up uh, way before work and going to Starbucks at like 5 a.m., well, like three hours before work, two hours, whatever, and just writing. I was working on this book and I was trying to like write my way free in some respects. I think I'm always trying to do that. And um, yeah, so this chapter came out of it and it's called Life is Measured in Moments. And I kicked it off with a quote by Ram Dass. It said, the heart surrenders everything to the moment the mind judges and holds back. Before beginning work on this book, I had another one in mind. I set out to write a book called The Invictus Principle. Invictus is often referred to as the ability to master one's own fate, as described in the 1973 Ernest Henley poem carrying the same title. My thought process behind the book was to interview as many high performers as possible and tease out a formula that you and I could apply to our own lives. Essentially, I wanted to create a three to five step process that, if followed, would all but guarantee success in your chosen pursuit. I wanted to know how we might learn to define our own parameters for a successful life and what formula might help us achieve it. This would be an easy to follow escape plan to avoid the drudgery of an average life so many of us feel trapped inside of. I thought earnestly about how great it would feel to hand the keys to freedom over to all the people living lives of quiet desperation, to those of us who work our tails off for thankless bosses while secretly craving a different life, a better life. It had all the fixings of the next sexy self-help book, and I was hopelessly naive. Mathematical formulas work when there is only a single answer to be found. A plus B equals C makes sense when C represents a constant, an unchanging value with defined limits. If I were to tell you that like hard work plus an unlimited belief system equals success, it would be misleading. There are other factors involved. Luck, timing, your support system, your daily habits, not to mention the terms by which you define success in the first place. Even if all those things could be accounted for, which they can't, we still have another problem. We're not putting this equation to paper in a controlled environment. The truth is our lives are anything but constant and controlled. They're messy, dirty, difficult, chaotic, and filled with pain and struggle. They're also filled with inexplicable ecstasy and joy. They're filled with moments when you didn't know being alive could feel so good. It is those moments that make all the pain and struggle worth it in a way that we can't always understand. You simply can't have one without the other. And that's what the human experience is, an unstable, impassioned paradox. And I should probably say, too, you know, I had a podcast called Lionheart Radio, and, I, and I, on that episode or on that podcast, I would interview in all the episodes different high performers and like uh, tons of Olympic athletes and pro athletes and, and business execs and all of these people. And I had a spreadsheet of like different things that they would say, thinking I was going to write this book called The Invictus Principle. And then I started to wake up to this paradox, to the messy, to the dirty, to the chaotic, and realize that all my attempts to get rid of that weren't helping. It was all still there, even if I rejected it. The only thing was different is that, like I was saying before, I wasn't there for it. And I think that there's something tragic about that because this is your life. It's happening right now. We're always living, back into the book here, we're always living within an enigma of environments that are changing for reasons beyond our control, which induces feelings that we don't understand. 
This in turn puts us in emotional states we don't or wouldn't necessarily choose to be in. And then we're left to pick up the pieces. And that's what life is. You and I, up to our knees in mud, picking up the shattered pieces of what used to be and trying our best to put them together in a way that will actually make something great, or at least something that is worth being a part of. We're always in flux, and if you can gain some perspective even in the midst of a storm, the flux is what makes the whole thing so damn beautiful. It is knowing that although you're muddy and in pain, it's going to make one hell of a story when you're on the other end of it. It's also why there's no formula that works for everyone. We're dynamic beings who are complex beyond comprehension. That makes both simplicity and safety short-lived ideals within our lives. There is no path. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. Trying to look at our lives as constants that might be controlled and to define them within those limits will only lead to disappointment. Yet how many of us do that? How many of us seek the simple solution to a complex problem and then cling to it, hoping for a positive outcome? How many of us hold on tightly to what we know or what we've been told because it feels safe? I'm going to keep going here, but I want to say something about this. Because I came to a realization in my life um, over the last, let's say, a couple of years for sure, but really in the last six months has this really come home to me. And... Um, you know, we have all of these attempts, and I talk about this all the time, trying to manipulate, trying to control, trying to get what we want out of life. And I had this feeling, you know, I, I was somewhere around 20, well, I was 22 years old. Actually, I remember exactly where I was. I was 22 years old, and I, I was in the military, and I had made it through a special operations selection. I had done a deployment. And I had this feeling of like, I can really do this. I can make myself happy. I can satisfy myself. I can go out there and fucking make this happen. I can do it. I wrote a book called Burn Your Couch. It's like all about it. And then um, we used to have these things called Barbecue Thursday at, my, at this house I was renting on the beach with my two roommates. And one of my roommates was deployed. And the thing about trying to make yourself happy is that reality is always injecting itself. It's always coming, it's always coming into focus and, and you can't push it away for very long. And I remember I was like, we had this barbecue Thursday and this rager at my house. Like, I mean, these were ragers. We got like, um, gotten like fireworks fights in the house. Like they were just so much fun and debauchery and out of control. Um, but I really had this sense of like, we can do this, you know? And um, my friend Jesse comes, I'm on a dance floor, pretty drunk. My friend Jesse comes and she's crying and I immediately know like, oh no, something is obviously not good here. And I thought of Tyler in that moment. And then as it turns out, he had passed away. And one of the last chapters in Burn Your Couch is actually about that moment. Um, so I know some of you have read about it. And then, you know, you reconcile with all of that. And I go through all of these crises that, you know, death confronts us with reality in a really, in a really harsh, but, but real way, right? Really real, not our fantasy, but real way of what's real for us. And so that happened, you know, and then there's another time too, I got out of the military and I went to Australia. I wrote this book that I'm reading from right now. Well, I wrote it there. I was kind of writing it all over the world, but I got out of the military, wrote a book, 
And I had it again, this sense of like, I can do this. I can make myself happy. I can go out there and build the life that I knew was possible. And then um, one of my best friends from Virginia Beach calls me and she's got cancer again. And, you know, within three days, I had moved back to the East Coast to hang out with her for what turned out to be the last six or seven months of her life. And, you know, every time that I would get in this place of thinking that I could find this lasting happiness, that I could fill this void and find this fulfillment, life always inserted itself and tragedy was always there. And um, actually, there's a story that's really interesting, and I hope I don't butcher it too much, but it, it comes out of the Buddhist text. And the Buddha was teaching in this one town, and a lady came to her, came with her son who had just died and asked the Buddha to perform a miracle to bring him back to life. And the Buddha said, yeah, I can do it. Just go to um, get a mustard seed, get mustard seeds from somebody's house who death hasn't touched, right? So you got to find a house where death hasn't happened. Bring me those mustard seeds and I can make this happen. And so she goes to the first house and it doesn't work in the next house. And she um, goes to like every house in town and then she can't find a house that death hasn't touched. And she buries her child and she goes back to the Buddha and she says, I understand. I get it now. And that's the reality that this life has shouldered us in, right? That, that has shouldered us with, I'm sorry. That, that we, no matter what it is that we do, we cannot manipulate it to keep lasting happiness because we are in this world of impermanence where everything is finite and everything is ending. And sometimes that thought can make us want to, A, keep us to a place where we want to reject that thought, reject the idea of reality. So we try to keep ourselves high, so to speak, right? We try to keep ourselves up and we reject it completely. Or B, if it does come into our world, we then take this sort of more morbid sort of cynical route about it. And it's like, it's all burning anyway, kind of thing. And I think that the possibility of joy exists amidst that reality, but it doesn't happen as long as you're rejecting that reality. That's what I'm coming to find here. It happened to me just the other day. I left yoga and it was one of those experiences where the, you know, I was just deep. I got into a deep meditative place and I had this like natural joy arising and I was just, I was feeling so good. <laughs> and I go to get gas after leaving the yoga studio and I'm getting gas and there's a homeless guy, sit, homeless man sitting outside of this gas station and he's got a blanket wrapped around him and it's cold out. And this little puppy, this like disheveled puppy, like comes out of this blanket and I see him hug this puppy and my heart just breaks. Like it just into a thousand pieces because I know what it's like to love an animal like that. We're not different, him and I. And it was just the same re reminder that no matter how, you know, there is no up that doesn't come down. There is no lasting and permanent reality. And so how do we experience and appreciate the joy of the present moment while holding the truth that none of it is lasting, that none of this is permanent, that we can't keep it, that we, there's nothing to really hold on to. And I think, you know, when I'm writing this chapter, this is one of the things I'm really wrestling with 
I'm trying to figure this out, or maybe I'm trying not to, so to speak. Um, but anyway, just some, some thoughts that have came to mind as I was reading. So let's jump back in here. Um, and this is on page 210. Like I said, chapter 15, if, you're, if you have the book. People make major life decisions about where to work, where to live, and who to date based on what will lead to the most quote-unquote stability within their lives. Failing to realize that any hint of stability is a false sense of security at best. At worst, it is a job that will never change, deciding to let you go. It is the mortgage that will never decrease in value, sinking with the market. And it's the spouse that you chose letting you down because we're humans and we do that to each other. The rug being torn out from under your feet is a lot more unsettling when you believe it can't be done. You're better off getting used to it, becoming friends with the change and the tension instead of fighting to resist it. The moments of tension are where life is lived. They pull at you in either direction, and you are perfectly capable of dancing with them as they do. Yet how many of us spend our lives trying to avoid tension in an attempt to get along? Often we're fake in our interactions. We lie to each other and to ourselves because pleasantries are easier to stomach than hard conversations. But hard conversations lead to long-term satisfaction. Pleasantries lead to resentment when real life is boiling below the surface. The fact is that so much of what we do today is a subtle attempt to squeeze the life out of our moments. We set the temperatures in our house so they aren't too hot or too cold. We do the same with our showers. We cancel the day's activities in the event of inclement weather, preferring not to go outside in the harshness of the world. Feelings are easily hurt, so we protect our youth with safe spaces and trigger warnings, despite the fact that a beautiful piece of art can never be appreciated if you never remove the bubble wrap. We answer questions about how we're doing with answers like, I'm fine or good, but busy. We're taught to make our decisions based on what is safest and not what might yield the most growth. And that begs the question, what are we here for? If we're here solely for safety and productivity, then perhaps we're on the right track. If we die and God commends us on our lives of stability, I think we have a lot to look forward to. We can look for a heaven complete with soft edges, 401ks, and conservative traffic laws. Nothing tempts me more than an eternity of good, but busy. And just breaking from the text here, I also want to say, like, what I found in my own life is that busy was my preferred way to be in the world because busy allowed me to stay on the surface. Busy kept me from sinking into the emotions, from sinking into the depth, from sinking into what was real. But jumping back in here, what if that's not why we're here at all? What if we're here to live not as we have been on perfectly paved roads with big buildings and even bigger egos, but as something more, something deeper? What if the temperature was never regulated? What if we were never regulated? What if you found the highest possible ideal you could imagine and then went after it with reckless abandon, all while acknowledging that the odds are definitely against you? What if the odds aren't important because regardless of your belief system, the odds that you are here now and that you have another chance to pursue something great means your existence has already overcome the most staggering odds imaginable? What if we're here to overload the senses with the best of the world instead of falling back to the same smell and feel of our old, safe habits? What if we're here to make the most of our physical bodies because our souls are infinite beings, desperately clawing to show the world and ourselves what real endurance looks like? 
So many lives are faced with adversity, yet when tested, the energy contained in one human's willpower is so great that the only logical explanation is a soul that aspires to overcome, a soul that knows nothing of limitations and boundaries. What if that's what you're working with? What if that quiet desperation you feel is the universe begging you to come play? What if it's your own depth begging you to be discovered? To sleep under the stars or swim in the ocean because this entire blue rock is a playground that's waiting for you. To forget about what's safe in the hopes that you might find what's worthy. To be knee-deep in the mud, picking up the pieces of your broken life, only to stumble upon someone else doing the same. And then to realize that your broken pieces aren't broken at all because they fit together perfectly. What if you're never actually broken, just a puzzle piece that hasn't yet found its fitting? Self-help gurus tell us we have to be positive despite our surroundings. But how do you stare out in the window when it's raining and still manage to see the world for its beauty? You don't, because denying the storm isn't living within the tension. You have to go out into it. You have to go to the beach and jump in the water while it's pouring. Then you'll understand that beauty isn't about aesthetics at all. It's about feeling.